That brings us to our final speaker, and that is Alanta Colley. Alanta is a public health nerd with a penchant for parasites. She keeps bees and dislikes wasps. By day, she works with Engineers Without Borders, and by night, she tells jokes about her bees to confused comedy crowds. <laughs> she has travelled the world working in health education on disease prevention and only, only contracted malaria twice, and sickle cell uh, disease never, I think. Yeah. Please welcome Alanta Colley. Thanks, Sarah. How are we? Are we well? Yeah. Correct. Good. Um, uh, thank you for the promotion before. Uh, I got uh, called a parasitologist. I was thinking about that. I'm a parasitologist to parasites if an alcoholic is a viticulturalist. Uh, I might be single, but I have contained multitudes, is what I'm trying to say. Um, now, I came to speak to you tonight about my hero, Alfred Russell Wallace. Uh, now, he, what, is, what is important about him? What is special about him? I'll, I'll tell you a few things. He was a self-taught scientist. He was an explorer. He was a social activist. And in his career, he collected more than 126,000 specimens from across the Malay archipelago, mainly beetles. Uh, and in doing so, he discovered over 5,000 new species, mainly beetles. Um, but most importantly, he, as you would know, hopefully, was the co-founder of one of the world's most famous, most important scientific theories, the theory of the origin of species by natural selection. Now, Wallace and Darwin were barely acquainted, and they were located on opposite sides of the world, but they came up with the same theory, and by some sort of twist of fate, almost divine intervention, they found each other and managed to publish the Darwin-Wallace theory in 1857. But Wallace's legacy has been almost entirely obscured in the shadow of the great Charles Darwin, and we need to ask why that is. And the answer is essentially, as we've been learning tonight through several talks, that science has not been classless. Uh, for those of you regular laboratory goers, we have heard every month about fantastic, incredible, self-taught scientists who the world has forgotten because they were not part of the holy trinity of white, rich and male. Now, Darwin was all of these things. He, he, he met that. He went to university. His father was landed gentry and he was part of elite British society. Wallace was not these things. He was from a working class family. He was born in Wales or not Wales. People spend a lot of time arguing about it on Wikipedia. It's not that important. Um, <laughs> He left school at the age of, of 14 and he earned his keep as a surveyor and never in his lifetime did he ever escape financial hardship. Now, there's nothing forcing you to pick a favourite between the two founders of the theory of evolution. I mean, I have. Uh, you don't have to. Uh, but I'll, I'll talk about some of their similarities and some of their differences. Now, we know that both men went on epic voyages around the world. We know that a young Charles Darwin was on the brink of joining the clergy when instead he went on the Beagle for five years, travelling around the world, seeing things that helped him formulate the theory of the origin of species. And I think we can agree that that 
is doing a gap year right. <laughs> I did not suspect I'd be the second gap year joke tonight. <laughs> should have planned for such an outcome. Now, basically, he had this incredible journey, but after that, Darwin pretty much returned to London and became your stay-at-home scientist. Um, he did most of his research at home. I'll quote... Um, I basically got through reading The Origin of Species by creating a hashtag called Shit Darwin Says. It was, it was the only thing that kept me sane. Um, to quote from his work, in the course of two months, I picked up in my garden 12 kinds of seed from the excrement of small birds. In some of them, I managed to germinate. Basically, Darwin spent his days collecting bird shit in his backyard. Now, while Wallace was on the other side of the world, he was risking life, he was suffering dysentery, he had ulcers, he had pustules on his legs, he could barely walk some days. And all of this so he could see orangutans in the wild. He was the first European to ever see the mating dance of the birds of paradise. Darwin was watching aphids. Another quote from The Origin of Species, I watched the aphids for some time. I then tickled and stroked them <laughs> with a hair in the same manner as the ants had been doing with their antennae. But not one excreted any sweet liquid. <laughs> I guess before Netflix, people had to entertain themselves. Now, Wallace simply didn't care what the establishment thought of his ideas. Darwin, on the other hand, was terrified about the implications of his theory would have on natural theology. His wife was a devout Christian. His mentors were deeply religious. He had seen what had happened to Galileo. Wallace became... And this is where Wallace and Darwin, the coalition becomes really critical because Wallace came very close to beating Darwin to publication. But if he had, we don't know that anybody would have listened to him. He was a nobody. If Wallace hadn't scared the pants off Darwin into realising he was about to be pipped to the post to one of the world's most important scientific theories, it's quite possible Darwin, who sat on the theory for 20 years, would have taken it to his grave. So they were symbiotic. It was a symbiotic relationship. They needed each other. Now, Wallace set off on a voyage of a lifetime across the Malay archipelago in 1854. He, he island-hopped between some of the 17,000 islands from Sumatra in the west to Papua New Guinea. And the more that he collected specimens and studied his finds, the more natural theology failed to answer his questions. Why did God create so many species? Why did he create so many insects? God seemed really interested in insects. <laughs> and in, within a single species, Wallace noticed tiny variations in colour and in shape and in size. If God had created each species immutable, perfect and unchanging, why were there variations? Wallace could no longer see animals as discrete. It was at this time he penned the Sarawak Law, the theory that one species could evolve into a new species over time. And he didn't yet know how or why, just that it did. But the jungle took its toll on Wallace. During February 1858, while he was laid up in bed with a malarial fever, 
He may have been contemplating death, we don't know, but he found himself thinking about the theory of Thomas Malthus, who wrote on the idea that the world would be destroyed by population increase if it wasn't for the checks of war, famine and disease. Wallace found himself thinking about the fact that these checks, maybe not war so much as disease, would also be having their effect on animals. So what determined which animals lived and which ones died? Wallace had observed this already. He knew that tiny variations in species matter, whether it was the length, length of an animal's legs or the sharpness of its claws or its camouflage, and suddenly it all made sense to him. It all fell into place. He came up with the theory of the origin of species. These poorly adapted to deal with disease or threats died, and those that survived passed on their traits to the next generation. He'd solved the puzzle. He was very excited, and he wrote an essay, and he thought to himself... Now, of all the people in the world, who's someone who might be interested in this? Oh, maybe that dude, Charles Darwin. I, I might send him my essay, which he did. Um, now, how did Darwin take to receiving this? He freaked out. <laughs> he, he wrote to his friend Charles Lyell, all of my originality, whatever that may amount to, has been smashed. Don't sit on an idea for 20 years, people. Um, <laughs> But Lyle helped him concoct a plan. They would publish Wallace's essay with additions from Darwin, and they would call it the Darwin-Wallace theory of natural selection. And this is what they did on the 1st of July, 1858, in a lecture. Wallace had no idea this was happening. He was still on the other side of the world. He didn't find out he'd been published alongside Darwin for another three months. And one would imagine that he would be upset by this, but he just wasn't. He just, he's a lovely guy, from what I can tell. Um, there just seemed like there was no trace of resentment about the whole thing. He just seemed happy to be involved. <laughs> he came back to England four years later, and when he published his journal, he dedicated it to Darwin. In 89, he wrote a book called On Darwinism. And in 1890, he was awarded by the Royal Society the Darwin Medal. Because the Royal Society are a pack of jerks. <laughs> what I really love about both Darwin and Wallace is that there was doubt. Uh, we know that Darwin was scared of denying God. In the second and third edition of The Origin of Species, very conspicuously, he started inserting the creator back into his texts. Uh, we know Wallace too, uh, he did not find everything that he needed in the New World Order. He felt that natural selection could not account for musical or artistic genius. He believed that the unseen universe of spirit had intervened in history multiple times, such as the creation of life from inorganic matter and the introduction of consciousness in the higher animals. And there was a lot of people who were very much into spiritualism at this time in history, they found themselves trapped between religion and science. They couldn't find the answers in, that they needed to explain the universe anymore in religion. But at the same time, they felt unsatisfied by the mechanical view of the world that was presented by 19th century science. In short, science had provided many answers, but simultaneously stripped meaning from the purpose of humanity. Evolutionary theory dictated that life just happened, it had no meaning and it had no higher calling, and even Darwin and Wallace struggled with this. What I also love about Wallace is that he wasn't a eugenicist. <laughs> Sounds like a funny thing to say, but there was a lot of it going around at the time. Um, and 
We see in the 1870s the rise of social Darwinism, people calling it the logical conclusion to the Darwin theory that surely uh, if an animals competed, there'd be groups of humans uh, who would be more suited and better adapted and fitter and ready to eradicate other groups. It, was, it underpinned and justified colonialism, racism and eugenics, but Wallace saw that contemporary society was too corrupt and unjust to allow any reasonable determination of who was fit and unfit. In 1890, he wrote, those who succeed in, race, in the race for wealth are by no means the best or the most intelligent. Take that, Darwin. <laughs> now, Wallace was suspicious of power in all, his, all of its forms. He was an anti-vaxxer. Uh, he picked fights with the movement for smallpox vaccinations, believing that physicians were benefiting from vaccinations, which they probably were. Um, and... For that, we can truly celebrate Wallace as a free thinker. He didn't care if his ideas were popular, when, whether he was right or wrong, and he was both in his lifetime. He was unique, and he was always controversial. And I'll leave you with a quote in a letter that he wrote to his brother-in-law. Whether there be a God, whether, he ha uh, whether he, we have an immortal soul or not, or whatever may be our state after death, I have no fear of having to suffer for the study of nature in the search for truth. I will never advocate blind faith over intelligent conviction. The whole history of science shows, that, shows us that whenever the educated and scientific men of any age have denied the facts of other investigators on a priori grounds of absurdity or impossibility, the deniers have always been wrong. Thank you. <laughs>